Welcome to the Business Addicts Podcast, where the stakes are high, talk is cheap, and results are on the other side of commitment. Hosted by a former addict, myself, and I'm his wife, Jamie. We uncover addicts' mindsets, showing that the talents you've created in your struggle will be the superpowers you leverage to heal your deepest wounds. Listen to former addicts share stories of how they've flipped the switch, including insights into how much we can believe in ourselves. For those of you affected by addiction, we support your desire to help the addict in your life by raising the stakes and creating emotional barriers. Welcome back to the Business Addicts Podcast. Today we have Robbie Reck, and we're going to be talking to Robbie about his experience with addiction, a little bit about trauma. So Robbie, starting back in childhood, you want to tell us a little bit about you and um, who you are today? Yeah, so 38, I'm on the older end of the millennial generation, born and raised in Milwaukee, went to college in Madison, started out in finance. I've been a recruiter since 2011, so already finished 12 years working on my 13th. And the last four of those years, I've had my my own recruiting firm by the name of Kibler Marshall. Cool. Tell you about me as a kid. <laughs> it's a big question, isn't it? Yeah, no, I, I know we're going to talk about you know trauma a little bit, but I think from a kind of a net net, I probably created more trauma for for my parents than uh, than they created for me. I I was I was the child that my mom called was it Parents Anonymous to get advice on how to deal with a, a kid who just has a terrible attitude and questions everything and doesn't like to follow rules. Mm-hmm. I I can relate to that too, especially yeah, as a teenager. Yeah, it's human nature. Yeah, I, I mean, I wonder if that has to do with some sometimes just. You know the whatever's inside of us, right? Like oh. not knowing who we are and trying to figure that out and getting angry about things that don't work. I don't know. What do you think? Mine might have been the other end of the spectrum. I was I was very very confident in who I was and what I wanted, and that was that was why I questioned everything. You know, you know, honestly, just and and I'm sure everyone can relate to the worst of that was you know middle school years where yeah. middle school. Probably like fresh, like I would say eighth grade and ninth grade, middle, you know, end of, end of middle school, beginning of high school. There's a huge transition there in terms of you go from the king of one school to the the, the lowest class of the uh, the other. So you, I mean, you're just treated differently, you're looked at differently, and then and at the same time, you're dealing with, you know, as a male, hormones are just uh, just <laughs> completely just ravaging your brain and, and just changing your personality. I, I remember being brought up incredibly humble and modest. And, and my dad is still that way to this day. And I've, I've tried to model myself after that as much mm-hmm. as possible. Uh, something I aspire to, I, as a salesperson, I still have to have a, to- a ton of confidence. Otherwise, I'm not going to close any mm-hmm. deals. But there's a humility and, and, and modesty that's driven me. But during that time frame, that was one thing where I saw my personality change for the worse. And I, and I was, you know, looking up to people that, you know, classmates that were arrogant. Yeah. And that was not, I just, it was just out of alignment. And, and I saw that within probably three, six months and, and changed that pretty quickly. Awesome. We talk about trauma, like basically, isn't it middle, isn't middle school interesting? If you think about trauma <laughs> and middle school. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say, like from a trauma standpoint, I, I mean, the, the biggest theme in, in my life when you know, in terms of trauma was, you know, just loss, mm-hmm. loss of people around me. So mine started, I mean, everyone's different, but the first big loss that I had in my life was as a seven-year-old, I was in second grade. So started school a little bit earlier, skipped, I started 
kindergarten as a four-year-old. So in second grade, lost my grandmother. And I, you know, some people have distant grandmothers. Mine was not distant whatsoever. Uh, there was a period of time where she was living with mm. us as my, you know, primary caretaker. Mm. Mom works first shift, dad works second shift. I see. So that was a, that was a, it was a great way for them to be able to kind of manage the household. But I mean, there was, there were a few hours in there that, that overlap between those two shifts where, you know, that my grandmother was, was like a second mom to me yeah, wow. and lost her in what I, I mean, to me, that was, that was very early in life. Obviously people have lost loved ones earlier than that, but that was really the first time I'd experienced loss, really hard processing that. And then at the same time, my, one of my dad's biggest regrets to this day is uh, we had a family dog and we lost him right after that. My dad was like, oh, you know what? He loves the dog so much. I mean, cause I was really attached to this dog. Okay. He thought it was a good idea to, as the bat was putting him down, have the dog be in my arms. Oh. So I, I watched the the light. Oh goodness! Like the, the candle extinguish as a seven year old. Man, that that was that was devastating. I I mean, I just replayed that in my head for probably a month and cried myself to sleep. So had a little bit of trauma there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think where you know probably the most relevant to this podcast and and kind of some of the stories that maybe some of your other guests have shared is, you know, alcoholism runs in my family, you know, both sides of it. And on my dad's side, he lost his first brother at the age of 42 to alcoholism. Wow. That is young. That's my age. Right. You know, that was, that was something where, you know, his alcoholism was, was bad enough that lost his marriage prior to that. His, his wife or, or ex-wife moved back to the Stevens Point area where they went to college to get him away so that his mom wouldn't see how bad it was, my grandma. So we lost him very early on in, in my dad's one of four. And then his another of his brothers drank himself to death within a year after that. Complete liver failure at 37. And those were two consecutive Thanksgivings. And then the third straight Thanksgiving, then because my Grandma had lost two out of her four sons the two prior years. She passed away the next Thanksgiving. I, I mean, it was it was a it was just a string of of losses. And then to to compound that, I think where it became a different type of trauma than if I had processed it, in, you know, normally in in our family, I, we're we're Polish and and we've got this like tough exterior and oh, yeah. you know masculinity. What what we call toxic masculinity now was just normal <laughs> yep. back then. It was just like, it was just how I was, I, I felt like I was expected to act and, and, you know, being at funerals and just seeing my dad and uncles, you know, not cry. I thought that was what was normal. So then I, I literally just shut that emotion down mm-hmm. for probably about a decade until I got to college and, and just didn't cry. didn't let myself cry. I don't want to say I didn't let myself feel because I don't think we can control the feelings that come up, but my reaction to sadness was just to ignore it, just to bottle it up. Mm pretended it wasn't there. It's probably the opposite with anger. Anger, anger comes, you know, quick for me. I'm, I'm not, you know, I bring things up and then I'm over it in five, five minutes. So, you know, that I still not, still not as healthy as, as others, but I think it's more healthy than bottling something up. All right. So on one hand, you know, you're very expressive. You're in tune to your feelings pretty well as a young person, it seems like, but then bottling that up for, for a long time. And then, so how did that play out in college? Started having more, I would say, just mature conversations with, you know, female friends and, and learning that that's not what is expected of, you know, men and, and that's not going to impact whether they're attracted to a man or not. 
yeah, really, you know, became a lot more understand. I still, you know, crying in public, I, I don't think that's the last time that that happened. My, um, and when I say public, I mean, like in front of my aunt, uncle and, and cousin while my dad was in the ICU for three weeks and, and I oh, wow. broke down just trying to kind of explain the situation, like almost give like a, like a progress update of the last like week or so and just broke down crying in front of them. But outside of that, I don't, I don't remember the last time anyone seen me cry because it just doesn't happen very often. I, you know, I still feel like I process those emotions in a much more healthy way now than, than back then. But it, I mean, it was all just trying to mimic what I saw. Right? Yes, that's, that's yeah. just kind of it's the way we're programmed. Yeah, I was kind of. I felt like it was just kind of expected, and you know, at at that point, I looked up to it. Right? It was. It was just like, man, that's that's strength, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> isn't that funny? And 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 now, like you know, so one of the things you know, in terms of you know, just like dating relationships, one of the things that I've learned over the last decade or you know, two decades of dating has been this putting up walls. And, and saying that doesn't bother me, like, I'm just going to get over it. I don't see that as strength anymore. I've been really envious of women that are willing to say, hey, I know I pro- I, I'm taking a risk of getting hurt here. I'm going to bring my walls down anyways and be vulnerable. And if I get hurt, I get hurt. But I know that I'm strong enough to build myself back up. And maybe those walls are up for a little while while I'm building myself back up. But you know, it's, it's almost, you know, the, the strength to take the risk of getting hurt with the upside of the emotional connection where, you know, most of my adult life in the dating world, there was no, I wasn't interested in having any sort of emotional connection in, in being vulnerable and taking that risk. And over the last few years, I've started to just realize that what I thought was strength and just saying, Hey, I'm just going to put a wall up, not be emotional at all. Thinking that that was strength. I mean, that's, that's the opposite of what I, I think now. I, I think that vulnerability is is really the true strength. Yeah. And, and, and just taking the risk of, I mean, especially as a male, I, I don't see a lot of males in, especially in the American business community, especially in front of clients, like we're programmed to just be robotic, yeah. right? I mean, that was that was a knock that I had in corporate America internally on teams was, hey, you're, you're, you're too robotic. Why, why can't you show, you know, the word was compassion, which I still don't think I have, but empathy with clients. Why aren't your clients your friends? And when I was in corporate America, that, like, that wasn't something that I want. I didn't want to bring that wall down at all. Yeah. And now that I've had my own firm for four years, I love calling my clients my friends Yeah. because it's it's something that you know developed naturally and slowly and over time. Because I think you know trust takes a long time to build. And, and a lot of that trauma from my childhood turned into, you know, we all have trust issues, but you know, I've lost a lot of, a lot of friends through you know, trust violations over the years and, and had to walk away from a lot of people. That's different than trauma. So that, that probably doesn't... Uh... It's all part of life. I'm, I'm thankful that you are being vulnerable even here. And I mean, you know me well enough to know that this is a subject I care about. And to hear a guy say what you just did, I mean, I'm almost... I'm, I'm going to turn into a cheerleader here in a second. But I, I think what you're saying is very, very, very true. Ultimately, like for me, even just confronting the hard things that I the ways I mistreated my wife, let's say, mm-hmm. and getting past making it about me, you know, the fact that I regret doing that and all of that, and then being vulnerable to the point where there is a connection and there's still things I deal with uh, all the time, you know, and there's still things I have to apologize for, but that vulnerability lets us work through those things much quicker. Right. Otherwise, if I'm resistant, like if I'm using that 
that that more like you say toxic masculinity i'm just i'm trying to be okay right and i'm trying to defend that i'm okay and then it tends to make a what could be an hour argument into to a week you know it's just a negative cycle right if 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 one person feels they're getting attacked then they're going to get defensive and, and attack back but yes if one person you know says hey here i've got a concern or i've got something that i want you know to be done differently um and if you instead of shutting down and getting defensive if you say hey you know let me understand where you're coming from you know what give me an example and you know maybe i can see it the way that you're seeing it and that'll lead to maybe a change in my behavior moving forward yeah yeah that's a great way to look at it. like it's an opportunity for us to grow and this is this is a subject that i'm really involved right now i'm starting men's group and we're working on yeah. intuition you know like how how intuitive can we get as guys and and i believe personally that we evolve two things one guys are more intuitive than they realize and two they can be more intuitive just as intuitive as as women it's just that it's not safe because we need to like you say put the wall up or achieve certain things so that we're okay in in the in you know in the broader culture and then when we've got the job and the house and the whatever the list is then we're fine to just sit up, sit down on the couch and and enjoy our our lives that way but without connecting that doesn't work obviously <laughs> like that's not going to end too well so when did the addiction come in yeah, yeah. so I, again you know with kind of mimicking you know those that are around us. So my, my dad didn't admit that he didn't use the word alcoholic until 2022 was the first time he ever, you know, described himself as an alcoholic. And, and it's not something that I, like, I didn't recognize, I didn't realize it. Right. You know, my dad's a very, very large man. Right. So, you know, not 400 pounds, but also not too far shy of that. So, you know, drinking a six pack of beer after getting home from work at night, you know, that seemed pretty normal mm -hmm. to me and didn't really Im impact him. Right. So there was never, I've never heard a slurred word. I've never heard him stumble. I've never seen him be embarrassing. So like a lot of people that have alcoholic parents, like I I've heard stories of, Oh man, my mom, you know, embarrassed me at this party, whatever, something like that. Or, you know, she always brings things up when she starts drinking I've heard those stories. I just never had that experience with my dad, right? It was, it just never happened. So I never labeled it that way, never saw it that way. And, and even though he says he's an alcoholic now, I, I, I trust that's the case because he craves that. He craves beer every single day and he hasn't touched beer in five years since he got out of the hospital oh, from a, a heart failure. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, that was a, a drastic health scare that sparked, you know, a change from, Hey, I, I'm, I know that I crave beer. It's not good for me. I need to lose some of this weight. So I'm going to walk away from it. And I think it, just that self-awareness I think is, is, is pretty cool. But you know, I, I saw that I saw the other thing too, is, is my family is, is very overweight, right? So there's an addiction to food that I don't think a lot of us want to talk about in this country. I, I was in, uh, I was in Lisbon two weeks ago and everyone there, you know, is in shape, right? They're all walking or biking very, very small portions for food and for drink. So like the flight over to Lisbon um, and back, you know, a, a Coca-Cola on the flight was served in a Dixie cup 
that you would put on your bathroom sink to rinse your mouth with water or mouthwash, right? So I'm the opposite. I knew as a kid, I drank more milk, water, soda than anyone. Like to me, I crack open a can of Coca-Cola and it's 10, it's gone in 10 seconds. It's, it's a gulp or two gulps. And then what I do, because 12 ounces isn't enough, I just crack open the second one. And then I like, you know, slowly sip that one for the next 10 minutes. And then that one's gone. I've played video games for an hour where I sit down with a two liter of Coca-Cola. The thing's gone in in an hour. Is that like a culture thing? Just learning? I think it was was just my family. We, I mean, we, we ate and drank more. Like I was always proud to be a competitive eater, right? You know, my, my, my family was big. And I looked up to that too. And I thought, you know, I was proud that I could out eat anyone and I could go to Olive Garden and eat the all you can eat soup salad and breadsticks. I get sick of, of serving you at the end. Right. So that's, you know, they run out of soup eventually. <laughs> it's the only way that I stopped when I can, when I put my mind to something I've, I've been successful, but it's, it's just that overindulgence in, in everything. Addiction to me is, is not just. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people think of it as like hard drugs. They think of it as alcohol, gambling. To me, it's per, it's pervasive in in every area of life. I've used a success. I've used that mindset successfully mm-hmm. for business. Being willing to work, you know, long hours for year after year after year, and and kind of sacrifice. I I wouldn't say sacrificing mental health, but sacrificing personal time. And fun time, you know, I was willing to put in the time at work to get to my goals. And, and part of that is just the the ability to be, you know, excited and, and addicted to what I'm, what I'm, what I'm aiming at. I still struggle with, uh, you know, caffeine addiction. I don't trust myself with caffeine and just my relationship with food and my family's relationship with food, completely unhealthy gambling. I've, I've lost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the stock market because oh, yeah. to me, the stock market was gambling. It wasn't you know, I was playing with options instead of mutual funds. And then alcohol, I would say was the other, you know, so there's, there's a lot of different facets of my life where I've, I've just seen it so many times. And and to me, it's, it's like the extreme mindset, right? Like, like nothing is mild, right? It's kind of like this all or nothing mentality. And, and, you know, there's a balance between living today and, and treating people as though they might not be here tomorrow. I might not be here tomorrow. So I want to, I'm going to show that love and that affection. Now, if, if something comes to mind, I'm going to share it. But at the same time, like taking a long-term view and saying, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to make the sacrifices now and be disciplined so that I can achieve my long-term goals. And I don't just get stuck with the, you know, satisfying these short-term desires of comfort. Right. So I, yeah, I think addiction is a lot of that, just that extreme mentality just applied to in the wrong places. Yeah. Well, if I think about what you're saying, like for me, even leaving work, you know, last year when I, well, I also have become an entrepreneur. Congrats. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that does, that's a big growth thing, but I never, I didn't mm-hmm. realize how much work was a coping thing for me. Like I thought mm-hmm. I was going to leave my job and start a new career or whatever, start my business that next month. But within mm-hmm. two weeks, I was like, I don't even know how to describe it. It was clearly, yeah, I could not function. I didn't know what to do. I, I, I wasn't able to relax, you know, at, at all. I, yeah. I was just like, I got to have something. I got to find a client. I've got to, like, it was literally the first time I started to feel 
anxiety was, I mean, uh-huh. I think it's always been there, but I'm saying like I was using all these things as a way to cover that up. It's basically coping. You know, I started a, a paper out at, at 11 getting up. Yeah, I did. I, I did. I think I did mine. I was, I was probably 13 when I did my first paper out. Yeah. And, and I never stopped working from that point forward. It was like the most fulfilling. I wasn't in a lot of sports, so it was the most fulfilling thing I, I did in life is, you know, we moved from there. We moved out to the country and I did rock picking, you know, bean walking, every form of manual labor that you could, you know, get dirty with, I mm-hmm. guess, detasseling, all the things. I, I loved the challenge of everything. I was always competing with me, at least, if not many other people. And so mm-hmm. it's interesting. I think that plays into it. I think that plays into addiction as well. Cause I, I was, I was hyper competitive. I was overly competitive to a point where it was not healthy. Cause I like, to me, I would compete at everything. I would compete in the car to get to the next red light the fastest. Right. That's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was it's stupid. It was dumb, but I, like, that was how my mind was wired was yeah. I want to win. And, and honestly it wasn't until I had a non-compete year um, in 2019. So I, I left my last firm in 2018, started okay. this right away. And, you know, there was a year where I, I couldn't go after old clients. So I had plenty of downtime and I spent some time in Spain. And, and that, to me, that trip alone changed my life. Wow. And and I had seen how slow Europe had been pr- previously. I, I spent some decent amount of time there, but it, it never like punched me in the face like Spain did. And, and I don't mean small city but not tons of tourists in the pace of life. If, if Americans are up here for pace of life at a 10 in terms of just sense of urgency, yeah, you know, maybe Europe's a, a five or a six, but Sevilla to me was like a two or a three. It was, you know, they weren't showing up to work. It seemed like until like restaurants, you know, even breakfast restaurants weren't open until like 10 or 11. They weren't walking to, you know, they weren't driving to work. They're walking. They're not carrying briefcases or backpacks. They're leaving work at work. You know, I, I, when you talk about, I didn't recognize I had anxiety until you left kind of a corporate job. I didn't realize how high strung I was. So to me, I, I called it, I, I thought I was high strung. But I didn't recognize it until that trip. You know, I, I would pride myself on having this high sense of urgency because that's what we need in order to win and, and keep clients in the business community. And that's that's still the case whether you're in Europe or you're here. But once you go home, I, I think I, I just wasn't turning that off. Right? I would get angry in traffic. You know, I got I used to get so angry in traffic that it I mean it sparked a trip to the ER for me. Right? <laughs> I mean it was. It was not it, like when I t- when I say not healthy, I mean, literally hooked up to, you know, electrodes on my chest in the ER, not healthy. Wow. It's just this mindset of like an all or nothing. Like we either win or we lose and losing just feels so terrible that we do anything to, we do anything to avoid it. Yeah, I, I can, I can even relate to that. I, there's something coming out here, you know, as we're talking, you know, being present. I wonder, I wonder if it's really true. Do we have to bring that level of competitiveness to get a deal? Do we, if we're, if we're really present with the client, you know, and they're, and and we really listen. Yeah. I don't know. You get get what I'm saying? Like, 
Yeah. And, and I, I think we, you know, the relationships that I have with clients now, it's, it's different than what it was when I was in corporate America. Right. Cause you know, those, those relationships now are, have matured, you know, even, even now that I've been on my own, I mean, that's been over four years now since I left and, and my client base now is essentially what it's been, you know, almost for the last 10 years, they're deep relationships and they're exclusive relationships for the most part. The work is really understanding the culture and the business and not just their business, but their business as it fits into their sector. Yeah, that's beautiful. To your point, we, we probably don't need to be as hyper competitive as we feel we do. And, and maybe in that, when we're first starting relationships, it, we might have to, but once we've had a little bit of success, you know, I, I think we've, we certainly have the, the capacity to then turn into a, you know, a relationship as opposed to a transaction, right? Yeah. Think about what you're saying. I mean, definitely as an entrepreneur, we learn that we have to connect to people more than just, it's, mm-hmm. not, a, it's not just a transaction, like you say. Yeah. If you do all that work to build a relationship, you don't want to just say, oh, we're just working together for three months. Yeah. You want to put in the work to work together for 20 years. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a slow burn to get to that point, but then eventually, you know, once it, once you get there, there's a deep trust that can be built and and invested in. Yeah. I'm thinking about, you know, like I, so as I was moving up from a consultant standpoint, I got a job where I was working with big companies, like billion dollar companies and, you know, everyone's the same, but I had all these things in my head about, well, you know, they're, they're better people or I don't know what the garbage was, but you know, the cool thing about a few years in just realizing like we started to have like really normal conversations, like what you'd have with your coworkers and, and um, you know, they're dealing with the same problems. They were, they were using Excel just like, like most people, you know, running, running billion dollar companies. And it it was, it was eye opening for me that we're all, we're all humans and we all, um, sleep at night we get up in the morning we we go to work and there's no real difference yeah and and you know so i mentioned a little bit about like the the alcoholism that i saw around me as a kid and then you know getting to college you know i went to utility madison huge party school and that that hyper competitiveness in that culture turned into i thought it was you know masculine to to walk around parties with a bottle of Everclear and say, Hey, like I, this is, I'm taking straight pulls off of this. Do you think you could handle it? If oh, you think you're, yeah, I'm, I'm a tough so macho, right? Yeah. yeah. No, I was being, I was, you know, the 155 pound kid that thought he was a tough guy, you know, at the time, like that's what the, that's what that culture was yeah. promoting. Right. It was, if, if you could drink more and handle your alcohol, you know, essentially you, you had a better social life. So uh, that competitiveness turned into, you know, what I would assume is, is almost surely alcoholism for me in that scenario as a senior in college, drinking five days a week. And, you know, thankfully, you know, once I graduated, you know, was able to get that in check right away and, and didn't, my, my career wasn't hurt by it. But I mean, that was completely unhealthy to the point where, you know, we, we talk about, you know, people that kind of black out. I, I was blacking. I was like forgetting things earlier and earlier in the night, right? It was, I would have my second drink. And then that's when those like brownouts would start um, by senior year. That that was 
you know, looking back on that, that's troubling, right? I wouldn't, you know, if, if I ever have kids, I mean, that's, that would be a hard story for me to hear yeah. them share. But I, I mean, it was, it was the culture that I was in and, and I wanted to, you know, quote unquote, win in that culture. And at least the way I felt to do that was to be able to drink a little bit more than everyone else. How'd you get past that? You know, I, I mean, graduated and moved out of the city. <laughs> that helps. But then my, my peer group after that was, was, in corporate America, right? So there's a mix of people that are skipping happy hours and, and because they've got, you know, a family and they've got kids at home that they want to spend time with. You know, thankfully I was able to just keep it to Fridays and Saturdays in, in terms of going out to the bars. Uh, I know a lot of people just do, you know, they'll do Thursday, Friday and Saturday. And and, and I only needed to make that mistake once. I, I think it, when I drink, it, you can't really, I can't really hide it, right? My my eyelids are halfway down my eyes. My voice is three octaves lower than, than normal. And I don't have the normal energy that I, like that everyone's used to. I, you know, I didn't get fired, didn't lose the client, but it was a wake up call for me where I just said, okay, I, you know, drinking on Thursdays is now off the table for me. Oh, over COVID, I, uh, I, I took some time and, and wrote a book it's called Character Q. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I talk about in this book is there's this experiment. Well, they called it a social experiment, but they looked at the, the veterans coming back from Vietnam, right? And there was 20, 25% of them were addicted to heroin at the time. And by the time they got home, you know, moving out of that environment, they just gave it up cold turkey. I see. Yeah. The majority, right? Not not everyone. Um, but the vast majority, you know, once they were removed from that environment, you know, they took care of their addictions themselves without any help. And there would have had to have been a lot more coping. You're at war. Tons. Versus, yeah. 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 Who knows how? Yeah. Who knows how they coped with it? Um, whether that was healthy or unhealthy. You know, obviously we have an opioid epidemic today. But they thought it was going to be far worse coming back, you know, in the, the period when the veterans were returning from Vietnam. And it wasn't it wasn't nearly as bad as what we have today. Right. There, There's, you know, maybe five percent of those troops instead of the full 20 to 25 percent that were, were using heroin over there, you know, continued to use it here and, and needed help. But the vast majority took care of it themselves. Yeah, I, I think that also kind of lends into the thought behind it. it addiction's not just inside of us right it's it's the environments that we're in yeah yeah right? you're, you're addicted to the culture that you're inside of so if that culture says you know hey you need to you know look at wall street you need to work 100 hours a week yeah to fit in otherwise we're gonna we're gonna kick you out of the firm guess what you're gonna you're gonna make you're, you're making that choice and you're either gonna fit the culture you're not gonna change it it's not happening there's so many environmental factors at play in terms of how we behave and whether we would label those things addiction or not. Because typically addiction is, it, it only has an, like a negative connotation, but those same attributes can be, you can choose to apply them positively. You know, that it, it, the, this addiction is not that far off from dedication. Yep. That's what I tell clients all the time, like from a coaching standpoint, is like if we find a belief that they had from childhood or whatever, or a situation that was hard for them, and we're working through it. Okay, so you operated from this belief 20, 30, 40 years. Great. You got to take all the positive from that, right? All we're going to take away is the negative, and we're going to take away that part of it, 
but you still get all the things you learn to do well from that, you know? So we talked about this a little bit. Maybe it is that more intuitive person, that more in touch with our feelings type guy or, or woman. I don't know. I'm not a brain expert, but that's the theory I've got as I'm, as I'm thinking about it right now is that, you know, when you're more in touch, you're more competitive, you're more expressive, whatever it is that you're more of, then you don't necessarily fit in a hundred percent. And then that becomes a coping thing. Yeah. And then, and then entrepreneurship just takes whatever that is and it just magnifies. Yep. Because now in, instead of, you know, losing a deal, but still having a, a weekly paycheck or bi-weekly paycheck, you lost that deal. And now, I mean, that was the paycheck maybe yes. for the month or the quarter. Yes. <laughs> or depending on your sales cycle could be this, you know, it, that could have been your year. Yeah. So, um, you know, every, the, the highs are higher and the lows are lower when you're, you know, working for yourself. So that, but that, that also kind of fits, you know, someone who, who has dealt with or battled with any sort of addiction in the past, maybe that experience prepared them for entrepreneurship. Yeah. Or on the, on the flip side, like if they haven't processed and they're not self-aware of the, the shortcomings that come with being hyper competitive or addictive to something, maybe entrepreneurship would break them too. I don't know. Right. Some people just seem to be like naturally entrepreneurial. I'm certainly not one of those. I never thought I'd have a business. I just wanted to work for other people. Okay. I found out that to really be fully in my values, use my gifts, use my intuition, all the things uh, that I I care about now, that is where I need to be. So one last thing. Sure. I think you're the only person I've ever talked to, especially the only guy that felt other people's pain. Can you just touch on that for a second? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a, yeah. Good. I, I'm glad you brought that up because I completely forgot that. My natural instincts inside of a romantic relationship are to kind of have that overlap of when someone else feels pain, I feel it as well, Right. Um, and it doesn't happen immediately. It, it, you, you, you really have to bring your walls down and be vulnerable to get to that point. And you've got to trust that that person's not going to hurt you in order to put yourself in that position. But once you have that trust, you know, when someone's in a bad mood or sad, I, like I'm in a bad mood and sad right there with them. Now, you know, similar to some of the things that we talked about so far, like I, I've taken that too far where there's the absorb versus observe. So absorb is not healthy. It's on one side of the extremes. And then observe OBSERVE is on the other extreme where, you know, obviously if someone's listening to this and not watching the video, absorbing your hands are completely covering each other up, right? Observing would be your hands are next to each other, but there's no overlap. Neither of those relationships I think would be healthy. I don't even know if I would argue one's healthier than the other. There's got to be a little bit of overlap. Yeah where you can, you understand and you can have the empathy of understanding where that person's coming from and feeling for them to some extent. But I don't think it's healthy to have your mood and emotions tied to someone else's 100%, especially if they're not reciprocating. I totally agree. Right. If you're only getting their bad moods, let's say it's something as easy as you don't have your, you know, a separate friend group. You don't have a separate sports league or however you want to look at that. If you don't have an outside group of friends or something away from the relationship 
that's stable that you can go to when things are tumultuous inside the relationship, that's just not healthy. So I think, you know, for me, my outside of relationships or exclusive ones, I would just keep zero emotion. And it was, it was really no emotional overlap whatsoever. And I did that for years and years and years. And then when I find someone that was, that I was interested in and had starting an exclusive relationship with, then I would jump straight through like a secure attachment all the way to completely being impacted by their moods that day or that week. And neither of those are, were healthy for me. So i uh, continually trying to get better at that. I, I think with a family, it's, it's, it's a lot more normal to not put up any walls at all. And I think that's, it can still be healthy because you're, you don't, you know, you can walk away assuming you don't live with them, right? Your, your parents or your siblings, there's natural space, you know, physical space, mental space in between that. You can just say, Hey, you know what? I'm done with this argument. I'm going to go home. But let's say you're living with someone in a romantic relationship. Those feelings are intensified and you don't have that space to just say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to leave. There's, it's not as easy to find that mental space, that physical space, you know, to keep the relationship healthy. So yeah, that's, that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm continually learning about that and, and, and working on that. But I knew that when I wasn't showing any emotion, that was unhealthy for the people that I was spending time with and, and not being in exclusive relationships was just a signal of that. But then once I would get in exclusive relationships, the overlap of emotions, I quickly learned that that's not healthy either. So trying to strike more of a balance, which when we talk about those extremes in addiction, I'm always aspiring to be more balanced. And that's, that's something I've, I've struggled with my whole life and will continue to struggle with. I really have only had one relationship in my life, but um, you know, one thing Jamie and I've worked on in the last couple of years is that I've really learned the power of this, that mm-hmm. I like her as an individual and she likes me as an individual and we both are we have our own way of being like i needed to learn more to say sometimes hey i need you know you're gonna go do that trip thing with the kids and all that i need some more space Mm. because i've just been back to back with people for two days you know or we've had people over or whatever i need that space because i'm i'm an introvert so i've had to learn because before what i would do is just say well well, you know, it would not be about me at all. I would just be like, oh, uh, yeah, you want to do that? I guess I have to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, like we're married, so that's what we got to do. But even now, what we've learned is she she lets me speak up about that, like what I need, and I do the same for her. And she's that's going to be more meetings, more, more, more mm-hmm. nights with the women, you know, more trips sometimes. And that's what she needs. And then, but there's also something else that together we also create something, you know, like our relationship together is some, it's like three entities, individuals, and then the togetherness is something that we take care of as well. Instead of making it just that, just the relationship or just individuals, it's both. And that concept has helped us a lot. So we, we built a contract, a marriage contract around our relationship and what that looks like, what our values are together, what what we stand for, what we're what we're gonna not do, and if we do do, what do we do about it? Um, nice. You know that kind of thing, and and that that has helped us a lot. Make it not so rocky. Like we have more. It's more like a foundation you can work from. And um, yeah, I've had. I'm still learning to speak out because it was more like, you know, coming from a more unhealthy standpoint. 
as an addict, I was saying, you know, like basically internally saying, well, whatever she wants is what I need to give her. Instead of I'm an individual, she's an individual, and together we're creating something. Right, yeah, it's almost like the analogy of co-piloting a plane, right? Each pilot is their own entity, but the plane is a completely separate entity that you can, you know, you can, you can choose to land it and get off at any time. Right. Yeah, and, and, and I've, yeah, exactly. I've tried to keep that in mind with, with relationships. I mean, it's going to sound kind of savage, but you know, you got to evaluate it on a daily basis. Like if you're not happy, we should be speaking up and saying, Hey, something's off. Cause if we don't talk about it, when we feel it, you know, chances are it's just going to keep going down the same path and then, you know, maybe it'll be too late to, you know, sell, right? Yeah. All right. Well, Robbie, I think we could talk forever. Just want to thank you for doing this and thank you for having me. Can you give us the book one more time? Oh yeah. The name of it is Character Cube. Okay. Yeah. And just want to celebrate, you know, a guy that's willing to be vulnerable and, and willing to be intuitive. And I think there's a lot, you know, if you're, you're a guy out there that's like that, you're wondering how to figure it out, you know, definitely give me a shout. I'd love to talk to you. Or just if you want to just celebrate how you already are that way and that it's okay, um, well, you know, have fun with that or, or give me a call and we'll celebrate together. Yeah. But I think it's I think it's really healthy for us, especially as addicts, to to admit that that's okay, you know, and to process how, who we are you know, and being true to us and not being true to what concept we thought we needed to be. And and that's that's going to give you a lot of success in, in whatever you're doing in life, especially if you're an entrepreneur, really being connected to who you are. So thank you very much. And yeah. we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Thank you for tuning in. And to stay in touch, email us at info at businessaddictspodcast.com.